This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. All right, welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Mannion, and so excited and honored to welcome today's guest, Sebastian Younger, journalist, author, and filmmaker, uh, new book out, Freedom, um, which is getting some really great reviews and love the concept of freedom and community and how do both coexist together, right? So yeah. Sebastian, welcome to the Resilient Life Podcast. Hey, thank you very much. It's very nice to be with you. Yes. So I was just telling you before we started, um, you know, I want to I talk about a lot of things, but uh, in full transparency, I'm probably one of the last people to fully read Tribe. Um, it is a book that uh, if you are connected in any way to the military community, you know the book Tribe. Um, and I've known the general concept and ideas in this book, but when I learned that we were going to have the opportunity to talk with you, I really wanted to dive into it. And there's so many things that I want to get into. And so I think let's start here. You know, you let's start a little bit with your background. You've spent many years, not only studying war, but also serving as a correspondent in war. So, um, you know, and a lot of people, I, I will say a lot of people think you're a veteran. You know, a lot of people will, are, are, well, Sebastian Younger, he was a veteran. I'm like, no, no, he wasn't a veteran, but he probably has more war experience than many who wore the yeah. uniform. You know, you've been to Africa, the Middle East, most notably you spent a year in an outpost in East, Eastern Afghanistan embedded with an army infantry union, unit. And um, a lot of that work is focused or stemmed from that particular uh, experience, including yeah. your uh, 2010 documentary, Restrepo. Um, give us a little bit of background on, on you. What drew you to this? What drew yeah. you to this line of work? You know, like before we kind of dive into some of these themes that yeah. you, that you yeah. talk about on a constant basis. Well, my father grew up in Europe and he was a refugee from two wars. Um, he, uh, his father was Jewish, and they were they lived in Spain. And when the fascists came in under Franco in Spain in 1936, um, you know, in this sort of terrifying way, they, they, there was an election. The progressives won, and Franco said, you know, the fact that they won means that it was rigged, and we're going to take over. And they, he and, and he had the backing of the army, and they took over, and they imposed a fascist regime. And my parents, my grandparents, and my dad fled. They wound up in France. And then the Germans came in, and he came to this country. And so war was always sort of in the background of my family. Then in my 20s, I wanted to be a journalist. I was sort of stumbling around with that, trying to make it work. I got a job as a climber for tree companies, so I was a high climber. I got hurt doing that, very so a high-consequence situation at the top of a tree with a chainsaw. And um, as I was recovering, I thought, maybe I'll write about dangerous jobs. And there was uh, a war, there was a civil war in Bosnia, and the U.S. was not involved. It was a civil war. And Sarajevo, the city of Sarajevo was under siege. And I thought, maybe if I just go to Sarajevo, I can learn how to be a war, war, war reporter and write about what that is like. I had this idea of a book on dangerous jobs. And one of those chapters ended up being The Perfect Storm about commercial fishing, right? But I also went to Sarajevo and kind of fell in love with, I didn't want to write about being a war reporter. I wanted to be one, right? I mean, I wanted to... And I sort of fell in love with it. And so as soon as I as soon as I turned in the manuscript for The Perfect Storm, I mean, literally the next day I got on a plane. I went to Afghanistan. It was 1996. And I was in Afghanistan as the Taliban were taking over. In fact, I was staying at a hotel in Jalalabad, the Spingar Hotel, the only hotel in town at the time, uh, with with the Taliban delegation to, to Jalalabad to negotiate the surrender of the city. And we'd sort of glare at each other over breakfast. It was hilarious, these sort of 12 bearded guys. <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I, I just kept doing that. I was in the civil wars in West Africa. I was in Afghanistan in 2000 with Ahmad Shah Massoud. 
um, 2001 with his forces when they took Kabul, you know, with the U.S. with the U.S. support, obviously. And then as the war sort of dragged on, it looked like an easy win. And the, and, and the Afghan people were thrilled, for the most part, thrilled that we had intervened and, and toppled the Taliban. And then as the war dragged on and the U.S. was making mistakes on the ground and, the, you know, whatever, the situation got more complicated. And eventually I thought, wow, this is going to go on for a while. And I want to do something I'd never thought I'd ever need to do or want to do as a journalist. I want to know what it's like to be with American soldiers on the ground in a ground war in Afghanistan. I refused to cover Iraq. I didn't think I could be objective about it. I was quite against that war. But Afghanistan, you know, I, I, I thought it was actually a good thing that we were there and it could be a good thing. And so I wound up with 2nd Platoon Battle Company, the 173rd Airborne in the infamous Korangal Valley in 2007, 2008. And that's, I think, for, mo most, of, for most Americans, their association of me with war reporting probably comes from that from that time, not not so much Sierra Leone or whatever. Yeah, and I, I interesting because um, one of the things that first caught me when I was reading Tribe is, um, you know, you talked about your perception of war. You got your um, you got your card when you turned eighteen, your Selective Service card, right? And um, and. But you, you know, was on the, the tail end of Vietnam. Vietnam had just ended. So you didn't have a positive outlook of, of war, right? And, and, yeah. and your dad was very anti-war uh, at that yeah. time after the Vietnam War. And so you were not expecting him to say anything in, I guess, in, you know, in favor of going to war. But he said something, uh, you know, you you don't owe your country nothing, I remember him telling me. You owe it something, and depending on what happens, you might owe it your life. And I thought that was such an interesting conversion of, you know, those that are this, this anti-war, pro-war, and what rests in right. the middle. And what yeah. rests in the middle is that, you know, you don't owe your country nothing. You owe them yeah. something, right? Yeah. And and I love that idea. I love that your dad said that to you. And I think in many ways that probably had to shape some of like how you moved forward and your line of thinking. It, it, obviously, it was pivotal enough. You put it in your book, you know, so I'd love for you to talk to me a little bit about when he said that to you, you know, you, you said it turned the issue around for me completely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm 18. I grew right. up in a very in a very liberal environment in Cambridge, you know, near Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? The heart of American liberalism, basically. And my father was, because of World War II, was a just adamant pacifist. And, and of course, right? I mean, we all know what happened in World War II, and war is a horrible thing. And, and so, you know, when I got my Selective Service card, you know, coming out of Vietnam, which was a war that had, you know, obviously, it didn't have the moral clarity that we had after 9-11. And... Um, and it tore America apart, and there was a draft, and the government lied quite a lot during the during that war, honestly. And so that that's the environment I grew up in. And so when I got my Selective Service card, I immediately was like a cynical 18-year-old, like, what do you mean you want to know where I live so that you can find me to fight your next war that's based on a lie? You know, I mean, I was like full reactionary 18-year-old mindset. Yeah. And, and that was when I talked to my dad and to, to my shock, he said, the, you know, the passage that you just read. And what he said was, he said, look, America saved the world from fascism. And there's tens of thousands of American citizens, soldiers who were, who, who were killed in Europe, saving the world from fascism, killed in his home country of France, right. uh, buried in France. And he said, th those young men and, and women as well, um, they saved the world. And so you don't know if the next war is going to be a suspect war like Vietnam or a war that needs to be fought, a righteous war that needs to be fought like we fought against fascism. And if it's not a righteous war, if it's an immoral war, if it's a war based on a lie, et cetera, et cetera, your moral duty is to go to prison protesting it. If, if necessary, go to prison protesting it. That's your moral duty. But if it's a war that has to be fought, if it's a moral war, your duty is to fight it and defend this world from fascists. And, um, and when he said that, it totally transcended the politics of the era. When he said that, 
I re- you know, of course, every 18-year-old wants to be part of something bigger than themselves, something great, something powerful, something noble, you know. And I grew up in a wealthy white suburb. There was nothing noble to be part of. There was no big challenge, no big hardship, no threat. There was nothing, right? And uh, I was like, damn, unless we get hit by a hurricane or something, how am I going to show my willingness to sacrifice for my community? And when he put it that way, it made signing up for selective service feel like a, a, an enormous honor. Right. And I still feel that way about it. And, but if, it was, if we were going to fight an immoral war and I was asked to fight it, I would say, no, I'm, you can take me to prison, but I'm not fighting that war for you. And I think I would have said, I mean, with all due respect, for me personally, I would have said that about Iraq. I thought Iraq was a mistake. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think that's what, I think that's what leads to some of the disconnect, right? Um, you know, for me, it's very hard to separate this idea of whether or not being in Iraq was the right thing or the wrong yeah. thing when I have a brother who gave his last breath in Iraq. Of and, of and course. you know, for him, you know, he felt a, a, a kinship and a brotherhood, not just to the Marines he was serving with, but also to the Iraqis that he served with. And so, you know, there, there's so many different perspectives, but I think that that, that can be such a dividing factor, right? Because I could clearly look at you saying that and say, well, that's, that's, uh, you know, insulting to my brother died there. I don't take it that way. Every, you know, I, and, and, and my brother wouldn't take it that way, frankly, my brother would respect the opinions. And he frankly tried to, maybe articulately sit down with you and talk to you about maybe some of the things you weren't seeing that, that he yeah. saw when he was there. Um, but I think that what is what leads to a lot of the division that we see yeah. and the misconception, frankly, of those who serve and those who don't. You know, you hear this insanely overused term, the civilian military divide. And, you know, and, and I talk about it is overtly overused, but for, for good reason, because it right. still largely exists, right? Yeah, and yeah. Um, and we talk about it and we say the 99%, the 1%, and, and, and it's just these big, broad talking points. But yeah. there's no action behind how we actually bring that division together. And yeah. I heard something yesterday. It had nothing to do with uh, the military or anything, but it was, it was uh, somebody said, you know, in order to disagree with someone, you first have to understand. And I thought yeah. that was so brilliant yeah. because there's so much disagree- disagreement happening right now in the world in general, but there's also not much understanding. And yeah. so it, it, it falls short for me. And, you know, I'm, I, you said something, um, and I want to get into one of the things, and you, you touched on it, where you you just said you know in world war ii we're saving the fascists and um saving people from fascism but one of the things that was interesting during that time and my dad touches on it i can't find i know i marked it in here because you touched on it too but one of the things that was different about world war ii and my dad so my dad is a retired marine corps colonel 30 years in the marine corps and He often talks about, you know, he, when he was young, everyone was a veteran, right? So you talk about the civilian military divide. He's like, my teacher was a veteran. The butcher was a veteran. My baseball coach was a veteran. So it didn't, that that didn't exist then, right? And, And you talked about it. I think you were talking about it when you were, when you were talking about Israel, right? And the differences that they have there. Um, If I'm, uh, I got to find it. But you, yeah, it's, it's sort of universal service, right? And so there isn't a divide, and, and it's it a more cohesive society in that sense, analogous to the way a more what you could call a primordial human society. For most of human history, we as a species lived in groups of 30, 40, 50 people, where you know what happened to one person basically happened to everybody. You know, one of the, you know, an easy definition of tribe, I've been asked to define tribe. How do you know if someone's in your tribe, right? And it's an overused word. Mm-hmm. It's like, I support the troops. You know, what's it really mean? Well, this is a very good way to, to know if you sort of put this test to it. What happens to you happens to me. 
when you feel that way about another person, they're in your tribe. And you, you know, it's impossible to feel that way about 5,000 people or even 500 people. You know, it means your tribe really means something where that, that sentence is meaningful. Well, I, you know, if, we, if you don't have enough food, we both don't have enough food. If you're in danger, we're both in danger. And that's the credo of street gangs and biker gangs and platoons and, you know, whatever, like all these small, small cohesive units, they have to, they have to look at life that way. And, um, and also, let me, I mean, just to backtrack for a second, but I want to be, because I want to be super clear about this stuff because it's, it's so important to this nation to get everything right. Um, I, um, if I were in the Marines, if I were in the military, and my president said, now we're going to Iraq, I would go in a heartbeat. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. What I was really talking about was the sort of Vietnam analogy of if you were drafted, if, I were, if there was a draft after 9-11 and I'd been asked to go to Afghanistan, I would have gone in a heartbeat. I, I live in New York. The towers are around the corner, right? If I were drafted and told to go to Iraq, I would say, you know, I would have said, I'm not sure I can do that in good conscience. So that's, I just want to be super clear about where I sort of stand with that. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And and so you talk about that. And, and I watched you actually, I watched a, a TED talk, you're talking about tribe. And then you break it down even more into this idea of brotherhood. And you did this uh, great TED talk on that. And I actually, in my top drawer uh, at my desk in my office, I have a piece of a notebook. It's an old tattered piece of paper that had come back in one of my brother's footlockers from Iraq. And Travis took a ton of notes, right? He was uh, always writing things down. And there was on a, you know, one of those yellow tablets, uh, legal tablets came back, a piece of paper. And at the top, it said, you don't have to like your men, but you have to love them. And I don't know when he wrote it, but he wrote it sometime when he was in Iraq. And I have it sitting in my top drawer at oh, my office. Yeah. And when I heard you talk about brotherhood, I'm like, that's what he was saying there. You know, yeah, is, that's, exactly. that's what he was talking about when he wrote that down. And, you know, I try to think about how do we teach this concept of brotherhood to the larger society? Because before Travis had been killed, I don't know that I ever would have been able to articulate myself what brotherhood was. I didn't serve in the military. I didn't have any of these shared experiences where I would was part of a collective group that the, the, the group was more important than oneself, right? And I loved how you separate that from friendship. But through some of the things I've had the opportunity to do after his death, I feel like I've experienced that idea of brotherhood. You know, I, I've traveled to Guatemala with a group of uh, survivors, uh, uh, men and women who have lost their loved ones in uh, Afghanistan or yeah. Iraq. And we spent a week there building a house for uh, a family that was living under a tarp. I, I just got back from Puerto Rico a year ago, did the same thing, rebuilding homes with veterans and families of the fallen. And interestingly enough, I've had those moments where I'm on these trips and, um, you know, something always goes wrong. You know, there, there's, it's not easy. You're put in kind of environments that you never thought you would be in. And I've had moments on these trips where I thought, you know, in my normal everyday life, I wouldn't be friends with these people. But the love I feel for these people right now is closer than uh, friendship I've had with people for 20 years because yeah. of this bond and this collective idea of the shared experience of what we're doing and the hardship that comes with that. And, um, you know, but I wonder, how do you present that to, a, to the larger society? Because you can't present an opportunity like that to everybody. Right. And, and so here's the thing. The, the humans don't survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately. Um, for a variety of reasons, sort of biological reasons. Um, we're not equipped to defend ourselves very well. And, but in a group, I mean, we're social primates. And if you put us in a group, stand back, watch out. Like, there's nothing we can't do, right? Yeah. And uh, we can kill a lion with sticks. You know, we can build cities. We can go to the moon. I mean, there's nothing we can't do. We have language. We can make tools and weapons. Uh, 
we are we are generous and noble. I mean, you know, the humans will die for a same defending a same sex peer. They will sac a human will sacrifice his life or her life defending a same sex peer, trying to save other people's children. Like other mammals don't do that, right? Darwinism would say that's a poor choice. In humans, it's a good choice because we only survive in groups, and when you do those kinds of things, it helps the group survive. So just to sort of keep that keep that in, in mind and. So the groups, the problem with the group is that your individuality disappears a little bit. The, the, the more the group needs collective action, the more your individual ability to make your own choices goes down. You, you lose your, quote, freedom, right? You gain a kind of freedom because you're in the protection of the group. You're free from outside threats. But within the group, your own individuality diminishes because you have to serve the group. And the less the threat, the lower the threat, the lesser the the less the hardships, the less of the less you need the group, and the more your own individuality can come out, which is also a beautiful thing, right? And so what we have in this amazing and modern society is that we have figured out how to neutralize almost all the daily survival threats that our ancestors faced constantly, and that they faced in a group. We have neutralized almost all of those. Right, and there are no saber-toothed tigers anymore. There aren't enemy tribes creeping through the underbrush. We're probably not going to starve. We're not, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which means we don't, as individuals, we don't need the group very much. And that brotherhood, which you know, in some ways, it's an unfortunate term because it can equally apply to women. Uh, but for lack of a better term, brotherhood. Um, that arises immediately when there's a situation of distress, a hurricane, a tornado, an attack, whatever. Um, and you lose your individuality. The Blitz in London, everyone served the, the, everyone served the city. They were digging the wounded out of the rubble while getting bombed. Um, people love those situations because they're needed. They feel useful. They feel big, right? They feel bigger than life. And... So the problem, in quotes, the problem with America is that we figured it all out too well. We're too safe. Other than the occasional 9-11 or what have you, when you saw those reactions. Um, other than that, we are pretty fine on our own. And so trying to elicit the bonds of uh, uh, the group bonds, the sort of bonds of, quote, brotherhood in a situation where they're not really needed for survival purposes it's a bit of a fake enterprise. I mean, you're sort of going through the motions and it's not really needed. And that, so that's the, so the whole question is, how do you create it's like sufficient allegiance to this group that we can keep America healthy, socially, legally, politically, militarily, keep it healthy and cohesive and safe um, without it feeling like an oppressive communist state? Like, how do you, how do you do that? And it's, I, don't, I don't know the answer. It's a very complicated question. And, and I don't know how we sort of solve that riddle. What do you think of mandatory service for every American? Um, not military, but you yeah. know, there's been a national call for service um, where you know, you're, you're required two years of service, whether that's Peace Corps, uh, you know, Teach for America, whatever it may be. But yeah. do you feel that that could bring a larger sense of collective brotherhood for society at large if if you're you got some skin in the game right you're required yep. to give back like your dad said you don't owe your country nothing you owe them something and so yeah. um i i'm a huge proponent of it i'd love to know where where you stand on that i i think i, I think mandatory national service would be amazing i mean it would, it would be it would, i think it would be pretty good for the country i think it would be amazing for americans themselves right individual americans and i wish at 18 when i had that conversation with my dad about the selective service card he was like you don't owe your country you don't owe your country nothing and you know when you know when you turn 18 or whatever you know before age 20 or whatever the rules would have been you're going to have to put in 18 months serving this country in some way right and you know i would have been uh, I, I think I would have, I mean, I'm trying to imagine my state of mind then. I think I would have been like, part of me were like, oh, wait a minute, but I was going to go surfing in Costa Rica. You know, part of me would have been like that. But I think a much more important, deeper part of me would have been like, oh, well, all right. So I do belong to something, yeah. you know? 
And so I think it would have been amazing. And let me just sort of jump in on, 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 a, on a related idea. I mean, I think the politics of that, I mean, look, I, and I don't mean to get political, but it is a pretty handy example. It was hard enough to ask Americans to wear masks. The idea that you could mandate that every young American devote 18 months of their life serving their country, that's politically speaking, getting Congress people to vote for that, I think is like, are you kidding? Like, and I, but it, but it, it, it's a slightly military-minded idea, so conservatives might kind of like it. It's hard to know. It's hard to know how the politics would play, right? Well, I think the left, I think, would be more up in arms about it than the right, frankly. And, I, and I'm a Democrat. I'm saying that as a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I always talk about, like, so we through our organization one of the things that were heavy into community service, right? So veterans are, you know, we, we adhere to the mindset of you're taking off your military uniform and you still have to serve. We still need yeah. you. You are still an asset to your community, to your country. Yeah. You have unique skills that the rest of the country does not have. One of our biggest programs at our organization is called Character Does Matter. And we actually train veterans to deliver character education to youth. And so wow. they're going out, they're working with kids and then they're serving alongside each other. And one of the things I always find fascinating and it's fascinating, but it's also not so fascinating is like when you ask kids about service, like what do you love about serving? What do you love about serving? And you know, whether it's a park cleanup or feeding the homeless, what do you like about service? An overwhelming response to that is it feels good. Yeah, and yeah. so this idea, like if it, it's it's a little bit of a selfish act in some ways because it feels really good to serve, and if yeah. you're not, not everybody is given that opportunity yeah. to serve others, and so they don't even understand what, like you said, not it's not just good for the country; it's even better for the person itself, right? Like yeah. this idea, it, it can change your the whole trajectory of your life, and so um, I don't know, I. I I think that I understand. Yeah, I think it would certainly be politicized like everything else is. But um, but I think there is just such an overwhelming need, especially when we talk about this idea of like, how can we collectively come together to, you know, do the best for 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 this country? Yeah, I uh, I uh, I mean, I, t I totally agree. And I, I think an, I think an enormous amount of good would come out of it. I would. Um... The thing that I was going to add is that the there are like symbolism is important and um, oh what I'm sorry I'm jumping around a little bit yeah. they've done study there been there have been a lot of psych studies about giving about sort of doing some generosity and what they found is that there's a there's a um, something called oxytocin which spikes in people that are having a sort of human connection and it's like breastfeeding spikes oxytocin in women. Men have men get an oxytocin response as well when they're connected to each other. Like the, it's the feel, it's the love. What's called the love chemical, right? So they've done these studies where someone gives someone else five dollars on the street, like a stranger on the street, right? Of sort of five dollars, and what they've found is that the oxytocin spikes higher in the person that gives the money than in the person that receives it. Right. You know, just as a sort of to follow on your point. Yeah. But symbolism is important. Um, you can get a long way with symbolic acts and. It would be great to spend 18 months serving your country or whatever in, in, in uh, national service, but you can get quite far with small acts and they do make a person feel like they're part of a greater whole, which is crucial to any group's survival, including a group of 330 million, the United States. So there are three ways, three very simple ways to enact that relationship. And I really urge everyone to do all three of them you know first of all everybody needs to vote um, the country needs you to vote democracies work when everybody but when the most people possible vote and they fail when not enough people vote and uh so we we need everyone to vote and it will make you feel connected to this amazing country you know secondly serve on jury duty uh jury duty is the reason that individual people cannot decide the fate of any other person, right? No sheriff, no policeman, no mayor, no president, no judge can decide what's going to happen to another person. It's a jury of your peers. It's what stands between us and tyranny.
Um, and finally, um, give blood. Um, I, I almost died a year and a half ago from a sort of freak medical occurrence. I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in a, my pancreatic artery. Very, very rare condition. It was a sort of a genetic freak, right? It was an, a, a genetic anomaly. And it ruptured out of the blue. And I lost two-thirds of my blood. Um, by the time they got me to the ER an hour later, my blood pressure was 60 over 40. And I needed 10 units of blood. They barely saved me. Um, and I'm alive. My little girls have a father. Because 10 people, 10 people I'll never know, donated blood. And now I'm a believer, right? I mean, I donate blood as much as I can. I owe the universe 10 units, <laughs> you know, plus, plus one for good measure. And then I'm just going to keep doing it. And when you give blood, you're going to help somebody. But you're also helping yourself. You're allowing yourself to feel part of something greater. And that is associated with longevity and mental health and all physical health and all kinds of other things. You're really gi giving yourself a gift when you do those three things. I love it. And those are like three very simple things that everybody, well, outside of giving blood, there are some exceptions yeah. to that, but, but three things that every single person can do yeah. and should do. And, um, and I, and I always think it's important to give, like, you know, it's easy to say, go serve, go do something. And for a lot of people they are like, well, what does that mean? What, you know, what can yeah. we do? So I love that. We're going to, we're going to make sure to highlight those three things for sure. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk to you because this is one of the things that I think struck me so much in tribe and, and speaks to me from a larger angle from this idea of, I'll call it, you don't, you don't call it this in your book. I've, I've heard it called this, this idea of hero worship, right? Um, the way that people have a misconceived notion of, those that serve in the military and almost to its detriment where I think they're trying to do good, but they're actually harming um, what, what we're trying to accomplish in terms of highlighting the, the assets of our military. Um, I have it personally, you know, there's a lot of people that were, you know, my brother was a, a first Lieutenant in the Marine. He was an all American wrestler, went to the Naval Academy. He was a bronze star with valor, silver star recipient. You know, you put that all down on paper and you're like, whoa, this guy was a stud. Like, you know, the word hero is used many times to to describe Travis. And and certainly I think his final acts on the day he died were heroic in nature. But my brother was my 26 year old younger brother who was a pain in the ass sometimes who, you know, and, and, and I always I'm very clear to say, especially when I'm talking to young kids about him, like he was just like you. Like yeah. what, what you don't hear about is, you know, Travis went to the Naval Academy and dropped out after his freshman year, <laughs> dropped out of the Naval Academy because he didn't really, cause, cause I was calling him saying, Hey, you know, real college is so much better. You should come, you know, and, and he left the Naval Academy. He ended up going back and getting back in, but like he made mistakes just like everybody else did. And, and a lot of times we put our service members on these like, pedestals that I feel damages them, number one, because they feel they, they have to project this image that is just not achievable. And number two, it gives a very unrealistic picture of service members and puts them into a group that frankly doesn't exist. Like they are part of the larger society. They chose to be a, they chose to be a Marine or in the Navy or in the army, just like you chose to be a teacher just like I chose to yeah. work in nonprofit. So um, I'd love to talk about this idea of how, how we can combat that, right? And you dive into that a little bit in your book, this, this whole thank you for your service um, mentality. Yeah. But talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's very complicated. So think about the fact that most people in uniform do not experience combat. And there's some dis dispute about what the actual fraction is. Is it a tenth? Is it a third that actually are in combat? But whatever it is, it's not even a majority. And so when the, the civilians who don't know any better and are sort of mildly well-intentioned, you know, uh, moderately well-intentioned, 
um, when they just use the blanket term hero for anyone who served, even if they're a supply clerk, right? Like what they're doing is they're putting the majority of people in uniform in this awkward position of thinking to themselves, if this person only knew what I'd actually done over there, um, they wouldn't call me a hero. They just say I did my job. And, and there's no dishonor in just doing your job. Like, come on. Yeah. We need a lot of people to just do the teachers, people who drill oil out of the ground so we can drive our cars, construction workers, physicists, whatever. Like, there's no dishonor there. But when you inflate everything to the level of hero, you're turning two-thirds of the military into sort of like, you're putting them in a psychologically complicated place because they feel like they're deceiving you. Yeah. Right? And then the other third that arguably are, quote, heroes, um, you're doing them a disservice in a sense by saying almost like you are infinitely superior to me. I'm just a civilian and you're a hero, right? You're a, you're a god among men and I'll never, my opinion can't be worthy of yours because you're a hero. Like whatever I do in my life can't even begin to compare to your 14 months in Afghanistan. You know, no matter what I do with my 50 years of service to this country, it will never compare. You know, and it's just like, A, it's not true. It's a simplistic worldview. But it's you're, you're sort of ghettoizing people in their valor. And if one of the tasks of this nation is to reincorporate veterans back into society, eventually you're going to have to get around to saying, you know what, you're actually no different than me. If you're... If you're different in your essence because you're a hero and I'm not, you'll never be part of this society because you know what? Society is made up of non-heroes. You know what I mean? Society is just made up of ordinary people who are doing the best job they can. You know what I mean? And until you're ready to join those ranks, um, you're always going to be, there's the military-civilian divide right there. You know, there you're never going to feel like you ever came home. You know, all those things that are actually that predispose people towards depression and suicide. You don't want to put veterans at risk, call them heroes right. in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'll never, they'll never reintegrate if you do that. Um, and that's the, that's the tricky, tricky part of it. Yeah. I, I know, you know, I know my dad gets extremely uncomfortable. Um, you know, he did 30 years in the Marine Corps, retired as a, as a Colonel, but he never deployed once. Yeah, never, yeah, exactly. de you know, and he right. served in, peace he served in yeah. you know the long, longest peacetime our country has seen and um and and he's very quick to say i did less than 30 years than a lot of our post 911 veterans are doing in two or three years like right. please right. do not do not do not overinflate my service like i, I served right. i was proud to serve and i love the marine corps like that's right. kind of it for him you know yeah. um but it does. I think it's so interesting. It makes people uncomfortable. We have veterans with us that, you know, they'll say, well, can I, can I participate? Because I, I actually, actually never deployed. Am I allowed to participate in your program? Right. Like, right. yeah, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. but they, yeah. there has come this kind of intersection yeah. of people not really understanding our veterans, not really understanding like, well, what, what veteran am I, right? And right. Um, because we largely make it this thing and they get uncomfortable, like, oh, you're, you're a hero. Thank you for everything that you've done. And they're like, well, you know, um, I was a, I was a comms, comms officer and, uh, you know, or whatever right. it may be, you know? Yeah. So um, it's interesting because, you know, and I think that's what you find is like, they're coming back and how they're taking off that uniform how do they reintegrate into society without society misgeneralizing what they yeah. did, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that makes them feel uncomfortable and it makes them feel a certain way about their service because a lot of them are, you know, people aren't going to be quick to say like, oh, hey, you know, oh, I didn't really, I didn't really do that much. Don't, you know, don't, don't talk about, and, and there's also, again, this misconception of, what is combat and what is not combat. And um, right. I've just, I've seen so much amongst even veterans themselves. Like, oh, he's calling himself a combat veteran. Like he never even left the wire, you know, right. it, just all sorts of things that it leads down a tricky path for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, one thing I would love to add is, is um, so 
coming preparing for war psychologically and physically is actually humans are adapted for war like we're, we're we come ready-made to fight if need be and that's why we're all here because our ancestors could do that um what's quite hard is to dismantle those preparations and return to civilian life yeah. it's hard to return to a you know quote ordinary identity if you're right. used to being you know superman whatever i mean again in quote superman if you're used to being that i mean listen i was a really good athlete in high school and college and uh that was my identity and when i had to sort of hang that up i was getting older i didn't quite have the olympic potential that i you know fantasized of i sort of was close enough to delusion have a delusion right but i couldn't get the, when i hung that up I had to return. I had to allow myself to be just become an ordinary person, yeah. right? It was super hard to do. So, one way, and plus, people who actually were in combat are often quite traumatized. Combat is bloody. It's unpleasant. It's um, the worst thing in the world uh, in a lot of ways, and uh, and also the most intense thing in the world. I mean, it's sort of everything. This max. It's the maximum of everything. So. That's an age-old problem. You can see it in the Iliad and in the Odyssey, and you can see it in Vietnam and in World War II, and you know, like, so how do you do that? And so one of, one of the things, and you read about this in my book, Tribe, one of the things that organic tribal societies have done for a very long time is to organize rituals that reincorporate the warrior back into society. And what that basically means is allowing them the, the cathartic and often victorious process of recounting their exploits and their ordeals to their people. These are the people they fought for. And th so these, these guys come home and like there were, there were rituals among the Plains tribes in the United States of um, returning warriors who would dance and sing and tell of their exploits and it allowed the whole community to become part of what had happened, you know, sort of morally in every other sense. It makes war something that everyone is part of, for better or for worse, right? And there's plenty of both to go around. And, and it's cathartic for the warrior. And so the only way I could think of to have that kind of process happen in a modern uh, mass industrial society like America is to make use of the town halls and city halls on Veterans Day. So basically, I came up with this idea along with uh, Seth Moulton, who's a representative from Massachusetts, uh, Marine, Marine Corps, I believe. He was in a lot of combat in Iraq. Very, very brave man. Yep. Uh, very, very humble. And he and I started something called Vets Town Hall. Yep. You can find it online, vetstownhall.org. Very easy to find. You open up the town hall of your town on Veterans Day, and any veteran of any war who served in any capacity has the right to speak for 10 minutes uh, in a hopefully non-political way but in an emotionally honest way about what it felt like to serve. And if you, quote, support the troops, you know, here's one way to do that in real life. You show up and listen for an hour and see what these people have to say. And, you know, liberals are going to go there and their skin's going to crawl when they he hear some vets saying that deploying was the best thing that ever happened to them. And conservatives, their skin's going to crawl when someone stands up and says, I can't believe you made me fight that war. Shame on you, you know, et cetera. But all of that is true, and all of it belongs to all of us. And so just to say that if you want to reincorporate vets, one way to do it is do a, a process like that in Vets Town Hall. We have all the templates, the posters you can download, all the very, very simple rules of how to do it, the, the guidelines. It's super, super easy. Yeah, I love it. I'm familiar with Vets Town Hall. Uh, I, I serve on a board with uh, Seth, I, I know him well, and he's fantastic. And, um, you know, what I love too, is this idea about sharing your story. And that's, you know, when I talk about our, our program character does matter, a lot of that is just that, you know, we say we're, we're teaching character education to youth, right? We're passing it down. We're building uh, next generation leaders by veterans leading the charge. Well, the simplest way they do that is just by sharing their story. So you see the benefits to providing character education to our next generation free of cost, but largely more important is the thousands of veterans that are getting to walk into schools and youth groups and sports teams in their local communities and share their story and share who they are and say, I'm back. This is what I'm doing. This is what I did. And I want to be a part of this community. So, um, I think it's a brilliant idea. And I think, again, 
just sharing that those stories also breaks down some of the misconceived ideas about our military, right? Yeah. And just like, I always say that the military is the ultimate uh, experiment, right? It is this collective group of, and, of diverse individuals from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, but they can come together to achieve a common goal. Right. And so how can we replicate that? How can we take that out and replicate that across our larger society in the United States? And and I, I think more than anything, like that is the biggest lesson that we can learn from our, our military community in general. And, you know, one of the ways that I found just this idea of that connectiveness and that that group mentality, that brotherhood mentality that you speak of was um, this idea of when Travis was killed. When Travis was killed, I have never felt so supported in my life. My entire family felt that. And I look at military deaths versus civilian deaths. Civilian deaths do not have the same type of network and community that military deaths do. And I've talked to so many people and, you know, that have experienced loss in a civilian loss. And it's, and it's hard for me to have a shared experience with them because our experiences were so different. I mean, I had every resource, every support group um, known to man at our disposal, right. right? When you're losing, when you lose a child outside of the military, it's a completely different process that you go through. And so um, I just look at some of these things and some of these practices that I think we can largely learn from outside of the tactical um, military uh, uh, information that they're being given. So I want to touch on two more things because I'm, I'm very grateful for your time, Sebastian. But, you know, this is called the Resilient Life Podcast. And, um, and you talk a little bit about resilience. and. Um, you, you, you talk a little bit about that in your books and um, in some of your TED Talks. And I'd love to know, how does resilience factor into the work that you do and the people that you study? Um, you know, you don't, you, you, do you notice a difference in the type of people who have the ability to be resilient and those who don't have it as much? Okay, so what I would say, if you think about humans in a sort of anthropological way, now we live in the modern world and it seems like we're very unconnected from our evolutionary past. But biologically, we have not changed at all since the era tens of thousands of years ago. Genetically, we've barely changed since tens of thousands of years ago when we lived what was you know, called the sort of Stone Age, in sort of Stone Age society, right? Um, we are the same, the same animal as those ancestors 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years ago. And trust me, those people were resilient, right? Like we would not be here. They lived through the ice age. Humans have figured out how to live in every climate in the world. Um, and uh, we're enormously resilient and, and life is hard and it's violent. Uh, it's traumatic. And if, um, if trauma were incapacitating to a majority of people, human society would have died out. You know, one, one, one lion attack in the camp and two-thirds of the adults are incapacitated with trauma for the next five years and everybody starves to death, right? It's, it, it, that's not how it works, right? Clearly, because here we, here we are. And so I, so I would say two things. First of all, in coherent sort of organic small-scale societies where people are very, very clear about how needed they are by the group, uh, and how dependent they are on the, uh, uh, on the group, that because people are trauma, usually traumatized in groups, they also, for most of human history, have recovered from trauma in groups. I mean, everything was sort of collective, right? The problem with veterans, with the modern era, is that sometimes people are traumatized in groups, but because we all live such individualistic lives, we recover on our own. Uh, in our own little apartment uh, or in our single family home with just in the pressure cooker 
of the nuclear family that's unconnected to neighbors and community and et cetera. Um, that's not human. It's how we're living, but it's not, uh, that's, that's not a, a traditional human way to live. So the resilience partly, mostly is drawn from the, from the cohesiveness of the society you're in. Once you have, which is not, which is not in the cards for us. That's not how we live, right? Once you have, the military has it a little bit, as you were saying, like death in the military, there are, there are networks that are much more supportive than an ordinary civilian. But once you live in a society like this, one of the other predictors of resilience is your childhood experience. And people who were traumatized as children, even by neglect, um, are way more likely to suffer traumatic effects as adults from from difficult circumstances, from tragedies. Um, and you know, there's an awful lot of child abuse of various sorts in this society. Um, all those people that were all those people that were traumatized as children, one way or another, are going to be particularly vulnerable to ongoing trauma as adults from combat or from a car accident or death of a spouse or what have you. I read that in, you know, you, co you covered that in Tribe and, and it is so true. And, and you know, you, you don't have the time to dive into it. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about PTSD, but also this idea that, you know, what you dealt with prior to your diagnosis largely influenced how you were gonna move through that diagnosis. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, I was I was diagnosed with PTSD not until five years after Travis was killed. Mm -hmm. And um, I um, admittedly and I shared this in the book that I wrote. I was super pissed when uh, a, a, a psychiatrist diagnosed me with PTSD. I, I actually right. felt unworthy of being diagnosed with PTSD yeah. because I was like, well, I didn't I didn't I was never in a, in a war zone. Why would I be diagnosed with PTSD? But another day, another time, but also largely hits into this idea of like how I moved through it and, and very similar to how you did. Um, and, and some of the things that you were experiencing in subways and stuff, that was kind of how mine came on. Yeah. It was like this yeah. out of nowhere, like, wait a minute, what's, what's happening right now. Yeah. But I also was able to work through it. I think largely because of my past background, um, and the fact that I had not experienced any sort of trauma prior to that. Right. Um, right. If you could share one lesson on war and the people who fight it, um, seeing all that you have seen, um, what would that be? One takeaway. Well, most of my experiences in war have not been with American soldiers. Yeah. They've been with people uh, you know, of other population groups in Afghanistan with the Afghans, in Bosnia, in West Africa, and then finally with American soldiers. And I, if, I, if there's one thing I would say that sort of unites them is that these war fighters are in this sort of odd, psychologically odd, con contradictory place where war is objectively held to be awful. It is awful. It creates lifelong scars in almost everybody that encounters it. Um, and uh, it's also, for many people, kind of the high point of their lives. And, you know, car accidents aren't the high point of your life, you know, and the, the divorces aren't, and the death of a spouse is, you know, all these awful things are clearly bad. That What's confusing about war is that it's so obviously bad. The consequences are horrific for everybody. But it's also often, even people who survived the Blitz in London look back on the Blitz as like the high point of their lives. And that's psychologically confusing yeah. to people. And that the, and in this sort of weird, messy, contradictory human circumstance of war, one of, along with all this sort of obvious cliche, like humans at their worst, blah, 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 like, what you also get is humans at their best. You get these incredible displays of valor and generosity and selflessness and connection. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, his grandfather, I think it was, was in World War I, English. All right, so we all know what happened in World War I, what a bloodbath it was. And he missed it, his grand, my friend's grandfather missed it enormously. 
and he said that um, war is the only situation um, where men can love each other unapologetically, like without reservation. It's the only context where men can do that. And so think about the, how complex that is psychologically to sort out in your mind afterwards. How could something so bad be so good? How could something so good be so bad? You know, like that's an awfully strange thing to sort out. And, and though I have never been in a combat situation, never served, I'm around a lot of combat Marines and I can feel that when they're together. I can feel yeah. that how they're dealing with those complexities yeah. of, you know, the time, their, their shared time spent in some of the most horrible yeah. places in the world, some of the most devastating days of their lives, but also the idea of how much they miss, you know, what they were doing yeah. together. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Final question. It's a question I ask every one of our guests on the Resilient Life podcast. You talked a little bit about resilience and uh, this idea of, you know, dating back to our ancestors. But I want to know personally for you, what does living a resilient life look like? <laughs> uh, I used to think that resilience was the same as stoicism. Right. You just sort of grit your teeth and pretend you're not in pain and either physical or emotional pain. And um, I think men have a particular, a particular problem with this. And it's a good short-term tactic for getting through a hard or painful or, or unpleasant task, which of course is adaptive. In anthropological terms, it's adaptive. But it's a terrible long-term term tactic. And it shuts you off to the sort of miracle of human feelings and the miracle of life, which is complicated and messy and painful. And if you sort of like, shut down, if you just shut down uh, your emotional reactions to things, you're really not living. And um, so for me, for most of my life, resilience meant being a kind of a stoic and disassociating myself with from my feelings. But I tell you what, if you disconnect from your bad feelings, along with those, you're going to lose your good feelings. Like you can't be selectively connected to your emotions. It's sort of all or nothing, right? So you want to live an emotionally rich life or an emotionally poor life. Um, and so as, you know, as I got older, I've learned how to actually let those feelings in to not be a stoic. And what I found, you know, I'm now, I'm, I'm an older dad. I have a, I'm 59 years old and I have a, I have a, a little girl is almost five and another little girl that's almost two. So I came to fatherhood late in life, uh, married. Um, and um, I got to say, the ultimate resilience comes from love, you know, from being from loving someone more than you love yourself, um, which ideally is how you feel about your children and and your spouse. Um, and the love you get back in return can make you can make you face anything, you know, and so to me, that's the ultimate resilience. I don't think I would have had much access to it at 20 or 30. At 59, that is what my life is about. And it's an, it's an amazing feeling. I love it. Family, family is everything. And, ha and knowing you have those people that unconditionally, no matter what, um, <laughs> that acceptance is, it's huge. Um, Sebastian, it's been awesome. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation. Uh, new book out, Freedom. We are certainly going to share the link to that and everything else that you've done. Um, I have to, one last thing. I had to say, my husband is a, my husband grew up on a small barrier reef island uh, off the coast of New Jersey. And he, well, a fisherman from the time he was, uh, you know, walking. So as much as he largely loves all of your work, the perfect storm is, you know, everything to him. So he said, how much are you going to talk to him about the perfect storm? I'm like, not much, but, uh, I had, but I had to tell you what a huge fan he is of, of that work. And again, so many really kind of cool elements into that and, and that sense of brotherhood that they felt yeah. um, and that they experienced in, in a different way than the military. But I love everything you do and I'm such a big fan of your work and also just keeping it real. And I think that's what a lot of our, when I hear veterans and, and those in the military talk about you and the way you put it out there. Uh, I was talking to our COO yesterday. He just got out, did 20 years in the Marine Corps. And I told him I was interviewing you. And he was like, 
everything that he writes about the men and women who serve is, is how we should be talking about it. And he's oh. like, and I, I, I believe it all. And he said, and that is the way we need to espouse our men and women of service. It doesn't dishonor them, but it also keeps it real. And I think that's what's so important. So thank you for your contributions to the military community for all the work you do and for joining us on the Resilient Life podcast. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. I'm, I hope I was helpful and uh, thank God for the work you're doing. I know you're helping a lot of people. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe and share with your friends.